Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board Review podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Amanda Redfern. Thanks for coming back on the show, Amanda. Just as a reminder to our audience, this is for medical education only, not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. It's been a while, Amanda. How are you doing? I'm doing well. A little tired, but ready to go. We are actually recording this on the last week of our... This is like the last Monday of our residency. It's pretty surreal, isn't it? It is so surreal. I never thought this day would come. Yeah, we hijacked our program director's office. I don't think she knows yet that we're doing this in her office. But um, yeah, you know, I, Amanda gave a great talk on a topic that is related to neuro-ophthalmology, sort of, which is going to be her... Is it related to neuro-ophthalmology? What do you... I mean, it goes with peds and neuro-op. It's good. <laughs> That's why we put that rotation together. together yeah, in our program, we put peds, pediatrics and neurology together, which I think makes sense. So, Amanda, what are we going to talk about today? So today we're going to talk about tests of sensory adaptation and binocular cooperation, which is a mouthful. That's yeah, Say it five times fast, please. I prefer not to. Okay, fine. I'll <laughs> edit that in. That's the beauty of audio engineering. So, okay, so yeah, what is it? Like, what is sensory adaptation? What is, like, binocular cooperation? So normal sensory binocularity depends on normal fusional versions. So we're talking about in eyes without any issues. This is how we go around seeing the world, seeing depth and other aspects. When the virgin system fails, the sensory response to that is either A, diplopia, or getting double vision, uh-huh. B, suppression to avoid that double vision, or C, anomalous retinal correspondence, which is another way to avoid getting that diplopia hmm. that everybody hates. Can you just describe for like, you know, this is going to come out probably in July. What is suppression? Yeah, is suppression like... What I do with my childhood memories. What do you do with your child? Can I? Can you please elaborate further? <laughs> no, I want you to. You're the host today. You have to elaborate. Um, I suppose it is similar. So when a patient is suppressing, they are basically not acknowledging a part or all of their visual field in one eye that would make things visually confusing. I would give them diplopia. So. It's kind of like this brain response to just shut it off. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Yeah, it's important to know that. So just because someone isn't complaining of diplopia doesn't mean that their eyes are aligned. That's basically what that means. Exactly. Yeah, which is really important in children. And then what about anomalous retinal correspondence? It's got the word retina in it, so I'm actually like paying attention now. (laughs) (laughs) You would. (laughs) So anomalous retinal correspondence is basically when you have a misalignment and you your brain and ends up choosing a different spot in your retina to act as a pseudophobia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Very interesting. Because your actual phobia is not aligned properly to get the same or similar input as the other eye. And that is visually confusing. So it, if it chooses another spot that kind of matches with the way the eye is rotated normally, then uses that as its pseudophobia, it gets rid of that double vision effect. So the eye could be look turned, but actually be on point. Like it could actually be foveating. In some sense, not in the classic sense, but right. for the purpose of visual confusion, yes. So how do we test these various things? There are a bunch of different tests. Actually, we don't do all of them in clinic, or at least I haven't seen all of them in clinic, but they are OCAPs relevant. And then, of course, there's some classic ones, and we'll start with the most classic, which is stereoacuity testing. It's important to note that 
there is an order of operations to the test, that stereocuity testing is a test of binocular cooperation. And so you really can't break them down before you do this test or you won't get a real response or one that you can count on. So before you even do vision testing, because in vision testing, we occlude one eye and have them read the Snellen chart, you should actually do stereoacuity testing. There are two different types of stereoacuity testing. There's a contour type and there's a random dot type. The mm. contour type is the one that, at least for us, you see most often in our office where it has the big fly and then mm -hmm. there are different types, but... For us, we have this target pattern type and also rows of little animals. For the fly test, you ask the patient to try to pick up the fly by its wings. If they are able to see it, oh, they also have special glasses on yeah, to help them. Yeah, cool 3D glasses. <laughs> yeah. So if they're able to see it in 3D, they should be picking up the wings off the plane of the, of the booklet. But if they don't see it, they'll be kind of scratching or pinching at the page of the booklet. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you have dots that they'll have to point out which one sticks out at them or animals and they point out which one sticks out at them. Right. The disadvantage of the contour testing is that there are monocular clues at higher arc seconds. So you could actually see even without the 3D glasses which one is the one that's supposed to pop out at you until it gets down to finer stereoacuity. The random dot stereopsis tests avoid this problem of monocular cues by embedding stereoscopic images in a background of random dots. So it basically looks like the kind of fuzz on the television. Nice. Um, there are a bunch of different types. There's classic ones. It's hard to describe, but they just look like that panel of fuzz. And you put on the glasses and you'll see a shape come out at you. There's a random dot E test that employs preferential looking. So you'd have a couple held up. And this would be best for kiddos who can't really talk to you about what they're seeing. But they do the preferential looking. Uh, there's also a TNO test, which is a red-green version of this test. And then lastly, there is the Lang stereopsis test, which actually doesn't require you to use any sort of glasses to see the stereoscopic image. Okay, cool. So that's how you test stereo. Um, bleh, stereo. So now I think we can get into ways to measure binocularity, right? Yeah, so we're going to start seeing if our patient is using any sort of sensory adaptations that we discussed earlier. The next few tests are going to require a cover-uncover test along with the actual test itself. Mm -hmm. And the first test I'm going to talk about is the red glass test. So this is used to characterize an already known strabismus, meaning that you're already measuring the deviation uh, before you get to the red glass. Yeah. So you know how many prism diopters of deviation there are. After that, you put the red glass, and it's just a plain red glass, in front of the fixating eye and no glass in front of the non-fixating eye. What they should see is a red dot. Oh, you are also holding a light in front of them, like a fin-off light. Yeah. Like so they would light. see a red dot in their fixating eye that has the red glass and a white dot in the non-fixating eye. If the patient is esotropic, the images will be 
uncrossed. So, for example, if the red glass is over the left eye, the red dot would be on the left and the white dot would be on the right. They're uncrossed. And then for the opposite... Or am I stealing your thunder? No, go go ahead. <laughs> so I mean, so that means by with the opposite with exotropia, the images would be crossed, right? So even though you have the red glass in your left eye, it would look like it's on the right, and then the white that would be it look like it's on the left. And uh, if that helps the listener, one mnemonic for that is exotropia is an X, which is a cross. So exotropics will see the images crossed. I like that. Yeah, that's the only way I could. I mean, you can work it out every time, but then you're, you know, you get, you get a headache and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> We're anti-headache here. Okay. So what's the point of doing it? So if the separation is equal to the previously measured deviation, then the patient has normal retinal correspondence. But let's say those two dots are separated by a different amount than what you had previously measured before you did the red glass test, then you would be concerned for anomalous retinal correspondence. Similarly, if the patient sees two lights superimposed on one another, so red plus a whitish light would give you a pink light, but one eye is obviously deviated, then that would indicate that they have anomalous retinal correspondence because they're deviated in one eye. So that means that the light is not hitting the fovea, but rather some other place on the retina, and yet they're still seeing it as central. So that is their new pseudophobia. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So pink is bad in this case. Yeah. Okay. What if they are suppressing? What would they see then? So in this case, they would only see a red light because they would see the red light from the fixating eye that has the glass over it. But in the one that has no glass over it, they wouldn't be seeing anything if it's in that suppression zone. Mm. So one way to get around this is to put a 5 to 10 base up prism over the non-fixating eye. This will move that white light or the projection of the white light onto a different part of the retina outside of the suppression scotoma. Now, if there is a white light inferior and medial or lateral or medial or temporal to that red light, then there is normal retinal correspondence. However, if they're just vertically misplaced or displaced, that would indicate that there is anomalous retinal correspondence because it should, in an esotropia like we talked about earlier, it should be uncrossed. Or if it was an exotropia, it should be crossed. Right. So if it's just vertical, then that means there's some. I see. So you're just, so there's, so we're assuming a patient has like a central suppression scotoma, like in their mm-hmm. macula, they just can't see because they have some aplasia or, or something wrong. So you're just trying with the with the prism. You're just trying to bunt the light out of that out of that scotoma onto a retina that works, and it's not being well, not necessarily a retina that works, but retina that's not being suppressed. Mm-hmm. And then um, you're basing. Then you can act as if as if they didn't have the scotoma, but it's just vertically displaced because mm-hmm. you're bunting it out. Very cool. And one thing to note is suppression scotomas tend to be more uh, tend to be longer than they are tall. They're wider than they are tall. Yeah. So displacing it vertically would be easiest because it would take less prism to displace it that way than horizontally because they're longer. The next test is uh, using Bagolini lenses. Okay. Not going to lie. I had to look up what these 
even look like? Bagolini lenses. So they're striated lenses with cylinders running in parallel, like kind of like the Maddox rod, okay. except these are clear lenses. Okay, so they're like they're like the pattern is like corduroy pants. Yes. But they're lenses. Yes. So they're like bridges up and down, up and down, up and down. Okay. Yeah. So what do we do with our corduroy lenses? So you lenses? either have them as loose lenses that you can put into trial frames, or they come as this little paddle with two lenses that you just hold up like a cool, pair cool. of opera glasses. What do with them? <laughs> By convention, the lenses are placed at 35 degrees in the right eye. And 135 degrees. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I can't read. <laughs> we'll re you. Bye. <laughs> Aren't you supposed to refract me? You promised me you'd refract me. I, you want, I'll refract you. I swear to God, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm going to refract the hell out of you. Josh specifically wanted you to refract I'll me. I'll freaking do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, by convention, lenses are placed at 135 degrees in front of the right eye and 45 degrees in front of the left eye. The examiner then performs cover testing during the exam. In a normal response, the patient will see two intersecting lines like an X. Okay, because, so if you're not familiar with Maddox rods, so the corduroy kind of smears the light, not not parallel to the corduroy, but like perpendicular. So the, the in the direction that you, you'd scratch the corduroy and make that, that sound, it smears it in that direction. It goes, that's where the light goes. And I'm not sure that helps. What? No, everyone knows corduroy. Listener, if you don't know corduroy, then tweet it. You know, then you can at me on Twitter. And I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, just orating <laughs> people to the bag of lignin ones. So in monofixation syndrome, there is a break in the line corresponding with the area of the central suppression. Mm-hmm. So for instance, let's say your right eye has central suppression. What you would see is a line in the left eye at 135 degrees. And in the right eye, you would see a line orientated at 45 degrees, but there would be a break in that and the middle of that line would be missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can say the scotoma. Mm-hmm. My guess is if you then took away the full line, like if your left eye was normal, then they might stop suppressing, right? Because if, well, if you cover their good eye, they might stop suppressing the line. That line might become whole. And then, so that's why it's important to have both of the lines at once so that you can induce that suppression in case the patient's suppressing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Of course, if they're completely suppressing and not just centrally suppressing, you'd only see one line. Mm -hmm. Without suppression, the patient will see two lines shifted either laterally for an esotropia, meaning the point of intersection of the line would be inferior. So imagine a perfect X where they intersect at the center and then moving them outwards. Conversely, they would move medially for an exotropia and the intersection point would be moved superior. Yeah, the easiest way to probably answer this on a test is to put your hands up. Listen, not like that, but like in an X, and then move them out, and you'll see where the line of intersection goes. Mm-hmm. Or, or move them in, you'll see where the line of intersection goes. Okay, so I think that's Bagolini lenses. What else is there? So there is also a four-base-out prism test. This is kind of a quick and dirty test, looking for the presence of a faculty of scotoma in a patient with monofixation syndrome and no manifest deviation. That's a big mouthful, but basically you're looking for, do they have a small suppression scotoma? Hmm. You know you're looking for a small one because we're only using four base-out prism. We're not using a lot of prism right. to change the fixation or change the way the light is hitting the eye. 
So in a normal response, you're going to put a four base out prism over one eye. That eye should respond by turning inward or adducting. And similarly, the fellow eye would abduct with it, so they're moving together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the fellow eye, realizing that it is no longer fixating in front, will make a corrective adduction movement. A, B, or A, D? A, D. So it'll go back to midline. Got it. So again, eyes are looking straight ahead because there's no obvious, no manifest deviation. Put the prism base out in front of, let's say, for example, the left eye. The left eye will then adduct, and the right eye will also abduct, so they're looking in the same direction. And then the right eye, realizing that it's looking off, will refixate and look straight ahead with an adduction movement. If there is a suppression scotoma in the eye that is being covered by the prism, then the eye will not adduct. So all that stuff that I just told you, none of that will happen. Okay. We'll just keep gotcha. looking forward, even gotcha. though there's a four base out prism in front of that first eye. So it won't compensate, basically. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. And if there's no refixation duction in the fellow eye, which was the last step of that whole sequence I told you about, uh, then it is the fellow eye that has the suppression scotoma. Hmm, interesting. So if they have no diplopia, that means that they have a suppression scotoma because they didn't get the, the impulse to refixate. Or there's a bifixation with weak fusion and the patient actually is having diplopia. Got it, got it, got it. So you, so to use a four-base op prison test, you really have to understand this, that sequence that you just described for us. Yes. Which, let me try. Yeah, let me try it. Okay, so I'm putting my hands out to help me visualize it because we're in an audio format. So if I have my like two pointer fingers putting out, and you put the base out prism in front of my left finger, then my left finger will point in. Then my other eye, my my other pointer finger, wanna, will want to move in the same direction, so also kind of point to the right, not point in, but point to the right. But then it'll realize it doesn't need to go out there because it's not foveating on the target anymore, so it'll come back in. So that's kind of a three-part dance. Right. Is it like breaking Herring's law, basically? Because they're going to go together, and then the refixation is like, oh, wait, screw Herring's law. I want to look straight ahead. Yeah, now. basically. We won't tell anyone that they broke the law by doing the four base out prism test, but we know. Oh, we know you broke the law. Okay. So that's the dance of so the four base out prism test. And if it doesn't follow the dance, then something's wrong, basically. They have a suspicion scotoma somewhere, or they're getting diplopia. Here's another one that I've seen used. It's it's the after image test. So the idea is this is used to test for anomalous retinal correspondence. And again, why that's so important is to pretend that you had someone with anomalous retinal correspondence. They're like macular got dragged out for some reason, like ROP or something. And then they, you know, then they're an adult and they want their business surgery because their eyes are misaligned. But you don't want to align the eyes because then they might experience diplopia, right? Because their fovea is in the wrong spot. So you need to see if someone who has long-standing strabismus has this anomalous retinal correspondence. So the way to test that is basically to brand each fixation. The way to do that is you shine a really bright light in one eye. Like So in one eye, you make it horizontal and the other eye, you make it vertical so that you know like which eye is which. So you just shine a really bright light right at the fovea, horizontal, for like, let's say for the left and vertical for the right. 
And then after you've done that right through, you know, where they're fixating, then you ask them to like look at some target and draw what they see. So if they're both their eyes are foveating on the same place, then there, those two lines will cross. So you should draw like a very even cross, you know, cause they'll be like the center of those two lines will be right on top of each other. If there's any deviation one direction or the other. They're not foveating on the, on the same place. So then you have a focus on a target and you put up your prism so that their eyes appear aligned to you, like to you, the examiner. If when their line, eyes appear aligned and the, the lines match up, like, you know, if the um, the vertical line and the horizontal line meet in the middle and make like an even cross, then they have normal retinal correspondence. But if the eyes look lined up to you, but the patient tells you that the, the that cross that you kind of branded onto their fovea is not lined up, that means they have anomalous frontal correspondence. Like if the horizontal line is deviated one direction or, or another with respect to the vertical line, that means that even though their eyes look aligned, the patient's not perceiving that their vision is aligned. So that means their retinas are not corresponding um, in, in the same place. And if you were to do surgery on them and correct it by whatever prism you just put in front of their eye, you would make them very unhappy because then they would have diplopia after the surgery. That's why that's an important test. One other note is in this test, if you're trying to figure out which eye to brand with a horizontal line and which one to brand with a vertical, remember that the suppression scotomas tend to be longer horizontally. So you would want to put the vertical line in the eye that is deviating or more likely to have a suppression scotoma and put the horizontal line in the eye that is seems to be fixating or their dominant eye. Great. Oh, and if it's not clear what we mean by branding, we just mean shining a bright light for like 10 seconds into that, uh, you know, in, into into each eye. Like there's just, you know, you'll get that, it, you know, like that photo stress image. Like when you look, you know, not that you've ever looked at the sun, but when you look at the sun, you get the after image in your eye. Hence, after image test. Yeah. Okay. I don't know what this next thing is. You'll need to explain it to me. The next thing I think is actually worth Googling just to see an image because it looks like some weird 1980s technology. Uh-huh. I like, may be off like, on what decade like it is. punk-ish. Yeah. So it's amblyoscope testing. This is used to measure ocular alignment both objectively and subjectively. So you will have the patient look through this special amblyoscope and then... You basically do kind of a cover-uncover test when you're changing the light back and forth between the eyes, and then there are a bunch of knobs that you adjust until the eyes are aligned or there's no movement when you're doing that cover testing. And then you read out what the knobs said, and it gives you the deviation in all directions. Then you'll project two images for the patient to see and overlay. For kiddos, they have fun ones that are pictures, like trying to put a lion in a cage. So they'll see the cage in one eye and the lion in the other eye. But there are all sorts of different ways to do this that are not quite as fun. And basically, you have the patients turn the knobs until they can get the two images aligned. And in that way, you have your objective measurement that where you measure the deviation and then they're subjective. And that can tell you if there is if they're equal, then you have normal retinal correspondence. And if they're unequal, then it would indicate that they have some anomalous retinal correspondence because they subjectively did not uh, change it as much as you measured that they should have changed it. Very cool. Okay. I think we've saved the best for last. This is like the big one. I feel like they test a lot on OCAP. And I definitely know in the clinic we use this one like very often. So Definitely in our Pete's clinic, we use Worth 4.0. Yeah, it's a, it's a good test. It's a good test. 
which I'll let Amanda explain because it's also like a little bit tricky to understand. So the Worth 4 dot test is used to test for suppression scotoma. The screen itself will have four dots kind of arranged like in a diamond configuration where the top dot is red, the two side dots are green, and the bottom dot is white. By convention, a red glass is placed over the right eye and a green glass is placed over the left eye. In a normal response, the patient should see four dots. They would see one red dot, two green dots, and one white dot. If they are suppressing one eye, let's say they are suppressing the left eye, they should see two red dots, the red dot on top, and then the red glass overlay over the white dot that was on the bottom. So it makes it appear red, but it's mm-hmm. really a white dot. Similarly, if you were suppressing your right eye, you would see three green dots, the two dots on the left and right, and then the bottom white dot would appear green because you had that green glass overlay. Got it. So one trick to do with the worth four-dot test is to test it both at distance and at near. A patient can be suppressing at distance, meaning seeing either two or three dots, but then when you test them at near, and this is usually with like a flashlight that has the four dots on it, they can then have a normal response because at near, the four lights will project more peripherally on the retina when it's that close, and it will be outside of the area that they're suppressing. Right. So... That would Again, that would be a positive test for monofixation syndrome where they are seeing or having some suppression at distance, but seeing all four dots at near. Right. Because the scotoma occupies a smaller relative space at near because near using more of your visual field than for distance. Then lastly, if the patient says they're seeing five dots, in this case, they would be seeing two red dots and three green dots. If they are uncrossed, meaning that the two red dots are on the right and the three green dots are on the left. It follows the same rules that we are talking about earlier. That's an esotropia. If they are crossed, where the two red dots are on the left and the three green dots are on the right, then it's an exotropia. Right. So I think, yeah, the important thing to remember, because it's hard to remember, like, which switch. I mean, you can try to use that X is crossing rule, but basically they have five dots, you have diplopia. So that means you just work out kind of which eye is going which direction. I think on OCAPs, it's easy to just draw it out, honestly. So do you have a headache yet? No, no. I, my eyes feel aligned and binocularly um, tested. Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> You're <laughs> Thanks, welcome. Amanda, for doing our last, I think it's our last episode of Residency. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. And if you'd like to support the podcast, a rating review on uh, iTunes or wherever you found our podcast is extremely helpful. And, you know, we'll still like we're not ending the podcast just because the residency is done. <laughs> you know, if Amanda has time and her busy neuro-ophthalmology fellowship and, and she'd like to do more episodes, we'd love to have her on. And you can tell us that um, you can pressure her using Twitter or whatever mechanism you like to come back on the show because that would be helpful for me because she doesn't listen to me. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anything else you want to say, Amanda, before we sign off? Uh, thanks for a great year. Actually, thanks for a great three years, Ben. I know. You have been amazing as a co-resident and as a chief. You also picked the hardest year to be chief, and you did a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, (laughs) to everybody else, 
We loved our residency program here at Yale and we highly recommend it. And I'd be more than happy to talk to anyone about the program and what I loved about it if you ever wanted to discuss. Yeah, yeah reach out to both of us yeah. if you're interested in um, Yale's ophthalmology residency. I also had a blast and I'm, I'm like literally not being paid to say it because I think our, our paychecks are stopping really soon. Okay, <laughs> but we'll uh, otherwise see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.